0: Great we're going to jump in. So uh it's really lovely to be with you all. I'm really en- really enjoying it. And uh so we this is a uh two two talks in a row that Alice is doing on um on sexuality. And uh I'm just going to grab those guys from in there because we don't want to Great I wanted to encourage those others to come in because we because it's quite a we're going to jump right in from the start, so um, yeah, so this is, this is, these are two talks that Alice has spent quite a lot of time preparing really, and it's a question that we get asked quite a lot um, what are our views on sexuality um, you know, in all sorts of forms, and so Alice has been doing quite a lot of research, and a lot of, a lot of reading and studying, and thinking and praying about this, and, and it's condensed into two talks, so if you missed last week um, really recommend you listen or, 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 or watch that, so uh All of our talks are on the hopechapel.co.uk website and you can listen to a podcast there. And then we've also, we also do a live stream onto YouTube and Facebook, which you can catch up with afterwards. So, um, they should be pretty available and, and encourage you to, to listen to the first one. Um, so let's pray, hey? So, Lord, as we go into this, um, this teaching now, um, we, we do so from a posture of, of worship. We worship you. And, uh, and we want to learn and, and grow as your followers. So we pray that you feed us and shape us through this morning what Alice brings. Amen.
1: Thank you. I absolutely love being with everyone here. I feel like we are family and I'm able to share things in my life. in no way would say I was transgendered in that I never desired to have a male body. However, for many years, I have had a sufficiently torturous experience of inhabiting this world in a female body that I would have preferred not to have a body at all. Whilst I hate and resist labels, they are both powerful and limiting. My teenage self, if living now, may have used the terms gender neutral, non-binary, possibly genderqueer and asexual to describe myself. When I was nine, I went to boarding school and during that time, from time to time, I experienced A number of things which led me to disassociate myself from my female body. Two examples I will share. The most severe punishment in the school, the wax. My Christian male headmaster would have me into his office, bend over, lift up my skirt and deliver painful and humiliating corporal punishment a number of times. Between the ages of 10 and 12 when it became illegal in private schools. When I was 12, I had my first period in a bath at school. There were three baths in the shared bathroom. I was absolutely traumatized because I genuinely believed I was giving birth to a monster. I had no idea what it was. I resolved that I would never experience PMT, that I would be stronger than my hormones, and I would repress and deny everything that associated me with having a female body. For years, I was genuinely shocked every month when I had my period. For years, I was also about one out of every two or three girls in majority boys' schools. At 13, I vowed never to talk to boys again. At 15, having learnt in French, German, Russian and Latin languages, there was feminine and masculine, but there was also neuter. I realised I must be neuter. Because whilst I didn't have a male body, I felt more naturally aligned with the masculine constructions of gender in the 80s than the feminine. At this point, we can laugh. I've done a little bit of crying, and now we can move on. Just think of the 80s, guys. And for those of you who can't, you're like, oh my gosh. Okay, so in the 80s, ideal men were intelligent, strong, and funny. I kind of... Felt more like that. You might not think I'm intelligent, strong, or funny by I have. I've begun the talk, but that felt more aligned to me than ideal women who were hypersexualized, kind, and silent. Don't forget, leading females in the media for privileged white English speaking girls, British girls in the 80s, were the following Princess Diana, the Queen. Various Bond girls, no one remembers their name because they couldn't say anything but James. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, who knew? And Madonna. I felt that women were perceived as unintelligent, vacuous, overly emotional, subject to hormones and weak. I didn't want anything to do with being a woman. I did though at times, because we do, don't we, make my female body work in my favour. For example, when I would score effortlessly thousands of athletic points at matches, comparable in, um, and comparable certificates to my genuinely athletic, hard-working sprinter friends, simply because I was one of only ever a few girls who would sign up for shot put. <laughs> Such a win! <laughs> Through this, amazingly, God enabled me to become a devout Christian. Through family and friends and their connections, I experienced incredibly kind Christian communities, the power of the Holy Spirit perfectly, uh, personally, and people loved me well and showed me friendship and a way to have a relationship with God that seemed for the most part to rise above issues of sex, sexuality and gender. I fell in love with the Bible and studied the Greek words of difficult passages concerning women in the New Testament to death. Whilst as a teenager, I often felt I had a better understanding of scripture and would be able to explain it better than most of the men I heard speaking and teaching, for periods of time, I refrained from speaking or leading in mixed groups because I desired to honour what I felt the Bible was teaching about women. Although I thought about romance, I never thought about sex. I went to university asking questions, Christians, is the soul gendered? And atheists... What is a woman? In the words of Elaine Storkey, as she created or constructed. Welcome to Hope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Following on from last week, we're continuing our series on sex, sexuality and gender, as Chris explained. And we're focusing on LGBTQ plus this week. Last week, I looked at male and female. And we'll be hosting a Q&A on the 29th of May. So any questions on this vast topic, please email in. We'd like to give proper consideration to any questions on anything we have. We've, we've scraped the surface of a vast topic. And even if you can't make the 28th, 29th of May in person, and you have a question, and if you want it to remain anonymous, that's absolutely fine. Just email it in, and we will hopefully be able to reflect on the questions. Last week we recognised that the ethical lines around sex, sexuality and gender in our cultural moment are consent. We also recognise that within that boundary, anything goes. Whilst Christians endorse the idea of consent, tracing it back to the new way of leadership that Jesus himself initiated, we learnt that when it comes to sex, anything does not go because sex is not just play for grown-ups, but a symbol that points to the greater reality of Jesus' love for and union with humanity, the church, a prophetic anticipation of the new creation when heaven and earth are one again. So what does it look like for us as Christians to engage thoughtfully, intelligently, and compassionately with one area of sex, sexuality, and gender, which has become dominant in our cultural moment, LGBTQ+. Firstly, we need to acknowledge we're in the grip of a culture war. I'm indebted to John Tyson's controversial Jesus series. At the end of the PowerPoint slides, it on the website is a full bibliography. For this quote by Dr Diane Arenshaft, who's the Director of Mental Health of Child and Adolescent Gender Centre, Beinhoff Children's Hospital, University of San Francisco. They refuse to pin themselves down as either male or female. Maybe they're a boy or a girl or a gender hybrid or gender ambidextrous, moving freely between genders, living somewhere in between, or creating their own mosaic or gender expression. As they grow older, they might identify themselves as agender or gender neutral or gender queer. Each one of these children is exercising their gender creativity, and we can think of them as our gender creative children. Young transgender people are our best teachers in alerting us to the reality that gender exists primarily between our ears, in our brains and minds, and not necessarily by what is between our legs, our genitalia, or in our accompanying XX or XY chromosomes, as many are mistakenly prone to believe. The proliferation of sex and gender identities indicate a significant cultural shift in our understanding that, that gender and sex are now on a continuum, not a binary. Polysexual, omnisexual, demiromantic, demisexual, pansexual, to name a handful, This has has produced a shift in behaviours across age brackets in the US in the last 10 years. LGBT identification has doubled to about 7% according to a recent Gallup poll in February, of which roughly 20% of Gen Z Americans, those who were born between 1997 and 2003, who've come into adulthood, a fifth of those identify as LGBT. More than half of LGBT Americans are actually actually about 50%, 57% indicate they're bisexual. And the majority of bisexual identities tend to grow, go on to marry people, have partners of the opposite sex. This has had a a dramatic shift in a, a recent article in The Economy as to who attends gender clinics So it used to be middle-aged men wanting to live as women, and it is now primarily teenagers, teenage girls. This is a journal, this is a medical journal of sex and marital therapy by Levine, Abritzi and Mason, called Reconsidering Informed Consent for Trans-Identified Children, Adolescents and Young Adults. I really recommend it. It will be, it's on, you can find it online, and it, it will be in the bibliography. It's a very comprehensive investigation into the levels of consent. In less than a decade, the Western world has witnessed an unprecedented rise in the numbers of children and adolescents seeking gender transition. Although the incidence of natal males asserting a trans identity in adolescence has significantly increased, the dramatic increase is driven primarily by natal females requesting services. Many suffer from significant comorbid mental health disorders, have neurocognitive difficulties such as ADHD or autism, or have a history of trauma. In other words, on one end of the, the culture wars, one end of the spectrum, gender exists primarily between the ears, in the brain. That's where reality is cited. On the other end of the spectrum, we have those who advocate that gender may be a social construction, but biology matters and is the most reliable marker of reality. These are mainly feminists, but also some uh, previous gay activists from the the successful gay revolution, if you like, ten years ago. The reproductive organs that are visible at birth determine how one will experience life in this world, as a boy or a girl. So this is Mary Loy from the Singleton Mary Lloyd Singleton from the Women's Liberation Front. My entire life work is fighting for the class of people who are oppressed on the basis of their biological sex, including atrocities like forced child marriage, infanticide of baby girls and female genital mutilation, which occur across the globe. But because of the gender identity movement, It is now deemed transphobic to even label these women and girls. We are seeing the legal erasure of the material reality of sex. And what this has created is a culture war marked by cancel culture. In the last few years, four feminist academics, professors in the UK have experienced to some degree being cancelled for their views that sex rather than gender is a more reliable marker of reality. Some have changed university positions and one has actually stepped down from her role in university. Jonathan Rauch, a key person in the gay civil rights movement, is concerned that the trans movement is being taken over by extremists in the same way, he argues, that the centrist gay movement had to rescue the gay movement from extremists a generation earlier. In his fascinating piece called American Purpose, the 1st of April 2022, walking the transgender movement away from the extremists, He critiques a book by Helen Joyce called Trans, published in 2021, differentiating radical gender ideology from trans rights. Radical gender ideology is a horse of a different colour. It is not at all the same as trans rights, nor is it any one thing. It's a conceptual mess, propounding some ideas that make sense, gender is socially conditioned, but also wild claims, Such as, Joyce writes, depending on its owner's identity, a penis may be a female sex organ. I take its central claims to include these. Trans women are women and trans men are men, no difference, full stop. Human gender and sex are social constructions and are not a binary but on a continuum. So concepts like male and female are relative and subjective. Gender and sex are chosen identities, and an individual's declared choice can never be doubted or challenged. Denying or disputing any of the above is violence. He concludes, that may benefit people who drive academics from their jobs or call for stopping the circulation of books questioning gender ideology, but for everyone else, it's bad. In a recent article in the New York Times in April 2022, Ross Dutat, "How to Make Sense of the New LGBTQ culture war," concludes his fascinating article with a warning to those sitting on the fence, silent liberals that if we don't speak out about the reality of the proliferation of trans-identifying youth, quotes, "Our silence will be our regret." So it seems that the question behind the culture war is where is reality lo- located? Can we have the first PowerPoint? Is it in our brain? Is it in our body? And that's neurological. I'm I'm talking about neurology as well as maybe more um, emotional or psychological influences. Is it in our body? Or I would say as Christians, is it somewhere else altogether? And we can navigate this as peacemakers successfully because we have... A source of reality that is not based in the authority of the self. The radical individualism of the self, which is our cultural moment. Our source of reality is basically beyond that. It's in the person of Jesus. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, truth and reality are two sides of the same coin in biblical thinking. So when he, you ever see the word truth, think reality. Because we're in such a post-truth world, we don't really understand. We just think truth is an opinion. It's actually just what's reality, what is actually real about the world. So when Jesus says, I'm truth, he's saying, I am reality. Hence, the Bible is divinely inspired because it's a a lens into the reality of Jesus. It's a messianic text. So I'm now going to address this conversation through looking at what the Bible says about LGBT and related issues. I want to emphasize that this is an internal conversation within the global Christian community. As well as acknowledging that gay and trans are two very different topics, I will try and see together how they are addressed as we walk through scripture. Among us here, we have gay and trans parents, siblings, children, friends, colleagues. God loves every single person who is now in our head who we are now thinking about more intensely and deeply and fiercely than we will ever know. We simply love those outside the Christian faith as well as inside. But those outside, we point to Jesus, we show them the reality and the power and the beauty of the kingdom of God. That won me over and it's enough to win anyone over. So this is an internal Christian conversation albeit within the context of the two billion Christians that inhabit the world globally today. So what does the Bible teach on this topic? I did a great deal of groundwork last week. Please listen to that talk because I can't, I don't have time to repeat myself, but it's foundational to what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to jump straight into Christians who believe in gay Christian marriage. One of the key arguments is the issue with the creation of women in Genesis two. We looked at that last week, you can read it for yourself. The argument is and is that it wasn't that she was a woman, it that was she was another human. I'm greatly indebted to Vicky Beeching and particularly Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian for helping me see the argument for gay Christian marriage by Christians who believe in Jesus and take the Bible seriously. However, in John Tyson's series he identifies in the translation that she's a su- the woman is a suitable helper, the key word conegdo, which means suitable, is both like and against. The choice of word emphasises how critical Eve is in her difference to the man alongside their shared humanity. This is how he puts it. If it was simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word k, not connecto, would have been just fine. That means like, the k bit. The verse would then read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God used the word conegdo. This would potentially portray both similarity and dissimilarity. Eve is a human and not an animal. That is why she is like Adam. But she is also a female, not a male, which is why she is different from Adam or opposite him. And after that initial creation narrative, there are three main arguments that Christians who believe in Christian gay marriage assert today. We hold them in mind as we look through the handful of verses in the entire scripture that specifically mention gay sex. We go to the next one. There is, there is truth in all of these. Firstly, that same-sex relationships within the ancient world were coercive, so they were prohibited on the grounds of coercion. They weren't mutual and consenting. Secondly, that women were seen as the inferior and passive partner in sex and therefore it was demeaning for a man to take the role of a woman in sex therefore it was prohibited because of the the inferior role of women in society and finally the third reason that Christians believe in gay Christian marriage today is that these prohibitions are about excess about straight people experimenting beyond their natural straight desire in gay relationships As Christians, we never need to be scared or defensive about anything we find in the Bible. It's always good news if we handle it properly. However, we do need to be careful. It is a double-edged sword, and we need to learn how to handle it, not as a tool of oppression, as tragically it has been used in so many ways, but in such a way that we encounter more of the incredible love and goodness of God. How I handle every text Therefore, is with humility and relentless curiosity. So these are the three verses which really speak into gay and trans issues in the entire Old Testament. I've placed the Torah in the biblical narrative last week. These are from the Torah. You have to listen to last week to see how they're placed in the biblical narrative. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 18:22. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own head. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. So, when I come across a text like that, I ask, would ask the following questions don't forget we said last week, I'm going to say it again this week, these aren't so much teaching us what to think but how to think. I would say beyond the biblical context, which is the Torah was to establish Eden in Canaan, is there any other useful ancient Near Eastern cultural context that we need to know about? How are unusual words that we don't usually use, like detestable, which is also translated as abomination, which we never really use, apart from maybe vaguely to do with the abominable snowman, and no one really knows what it means, used in any other context? Is there any other prohibition that mentions the death penalty? These questions help us build a picture for the context within which the biblical authors were communicating and help us glean wisdom from their words. So I could give a whole talk and there have been books written on these three verses alone. I had to restrain myself. I only have time to mention a few thoughts. Their word detestable or abomination is often linked with idolatrous context. Men having sex with men and cross-dressing were often associated with pagan Canaanite worship. In the ancient world, reproduction was understood differently. The man's semen is the seed which he sows into the woman who bears the fruit of the baby. So spilling semen for any reason for the ancient Israelite could be associated with resisting the Genesis 1 mandate to procreate because there's life in every seed, to increase life, which therefore could be a collusion with death. A man having sex with a woman during her monthly period, just in terms of the context, is also prohibited in Leviticus 18, something we don't probably know about, let alone see as relevant today. Essentially, we are asking, and, and other there are other many other acts which have a consequence of a death penalty, including blasphemy and cursing one's parents, we are asking, are these and other verses which are culturally contextualised and everything's culturally contextualised? This moment is culturally contextualised. You can't never be. We're, we're humans in culture. But is, uh, does it mean it's so culturally contextualised that it's not relevant to the gay and trans community today who are Christians or are these transcendent prohibitions that seek to recover God's original design in Eden go through the cross and in the spirit still apply to Christians today? That's what we're always asking about any instruction in the Old Testament. So in these cases where you could argue both ways, you can deconstruct it anything to death. You might have noticed anyone who likes deconstruction. we It's helpful to see how Jesus and Paul understand their Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, in order to glean wisdom. So let's go to the New Testament. Perhaps the most helpful insight that on Jesus's take on sex, sexuality and gender are two occasions when religious leaders ask him something to try and catch him out, but he always makes it about something else. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother And be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. In the ancient world, a eunuch was a pre adolescent boy who was castrated, or someone who, for whatever reason, was unable to procreate, i.e., nature and nurture. In one conversation, Jesus both reaffirms creational intent within the context of polygamy. He slips in the word two. He's very light touch. He probably didn't notice that, nor did I, till someone pointed it out. He quotes Genesis and puts in two. It's one man, one woman, not one man, many women. As was the practice in first century Judaism. And acknowledges that East of Eden, after the fall, there may be male and female, but there is also other He releases every one of his followers from marriage from this moment onwards. That Genesis 1 mandate to bless and multiply and fill the earth, which had been hanging over Judaism from the beginning, is now completely finished in one sentence. We now fill the earth with disciples, with children of the living God, with people transformed, with new creations. Jesus himself chose to inhabit this world as a eunuch in Matthew 19 in that he never got married as a late teenager and had children. This was something so required and and assumed within Jewish tradition that the Jewish boy was only really recognised as a man when he got married. Jesus violates our categories. Can you feel that? In Jesus' day, his singleness would have been shocking, even offensive, possibly even seen as resisting, the Genesis 1 mandate to procreate. So Jesus dignifies all those who, for whatever reason, can't live into the Eden design for human sexuality and marriage. Furthermore, he makes it clear in another conversation with the Sadducees that human sexuality points to the new creation, a sign of Christ's love for the church, and therefore it comes to an end at the end of this age and won't actually be a factor in the new creation when that symbol is fulfilled. He says to the Sadducees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the spiritual beings in heaven. This release from marriage and procreation and inclusion of those who, for whatever reason, cannot enter into marriage and procreation is affirmed in the beautiful account of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts From now on, believers are called to make spiritual children disciples, not physical children, and leave a spiritual legacy of making the world a better place. The overarching metaphor to describe this new community of faith in the New Testament is family. No longer are people defined by their human biology, their human bloodline, but by their confidence in Jesus' blood shed on the cross as sufficient to establish new creation. Everyone is invited and included in this new creation family. The world was designed as binary. Short of human cloning and artificial intelligence, which we haven't mastered yet, every single person in the world is a product of the binary sperm and egg. The trauma is not that the binary reading of sex is an oppressive myth that we have finally exposed. The trauma is that the world was originally designed as binary, male and female, but none of us have ever been able to live fully into God's design. I particularly want to honor the one in 3000 individuals who are born and navigate this world as intersex in that their reproductive organs are not clearly identifiable as male or female. By identifying as a eunuch, by not getting married and having children, Jesus identifies with and enters into the trauma of a binary world which has fallen. And in his execution, it dies with him. In his resurrection life, he dignifies all of us, giving us all access to the abundant life that is truly life, the kingdom of God. We are given a new identity as children of God, and we are now in Christ. We know that cross-dressing, the closest expression to the modern experience of the transgendered individual, was practiced in Rome, famously Nero dressed as a woman to get married to a man, indeed in every culture that has ever existed. However, it was clearly not an issue of controversy within first century Judaism, because Jesus was never asked about it, or an issue that needed addressing in the fledgling church communities in the Roman Empire, as Paul and the other New Testament authors never address it in their letters as there is no mention at all in the New Testament of anything comparable to the transgender experience beyond the elevation and dignification of eunuchs, I will finish this section with some wisdom from the highly thoughtful and informed Christian psychologist Mark Yarhouse. From his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, he specialises in sexual and gender identities. Towards that end, I see the value in encouraging individuals who experience gender dysphoria to resolve gender dysphoria in keeping with their birth sex. Where these strategies have been unsuccessful, there is potential value in managing dysphoria through the least invasive expressions, recognizing surgery as the most invasive step towards expression of one's internal sense of identity. Given the complexities associated with these issues and the potential for many and varied presentations, pastoral sensitivity should be a priority. In direct contrast to the strict adherence to Mosaic law in first century Judaism, the Greco-Roman culture was marked by both men and women having sex with both men and women. And many male same-sex relationships in Greco-Roman culture were coercive. Pederasty, older adult men as the dominant partner, having sex with younger male 12 to 17 year old passive partners was a kind of rite of passage for Greek males. Roman men also had sex with both male and female concubines, male and female slaves, male and female prostitutes whilst also getting married to women. However, McLaughlin and Tyson cite cases of mutually consenting same-sex relationships in Greco-Roman culture and furthermore cite that there appears to be no evidence of coercive power dynamics within lesbian relationships. In the verse mentioned earlier in Leviticus, the fact that both partners are subject to the death penalty in the Mosaic Law in direct contrast to rape cases where only the perpetrator is subject to the death penalty communicates that those involved are both consenting adults. That said, let's look at Romans 1, which is the first reference of only three references specifically to gay sex in the New Testament. Romans is the longest letter to survive from the first century and arguably the most influential letter that has ever been written. In it, Paul communicates the scope of God's restoration plan. The Gentiles, then the Jews, need rescuing from the old human condition that leads to death But in Jesus' death and resurrection, a new humanity has been forged. So Jews and Gentiles are now made new creations and reconciled in Christ. This section is taken from the beginning of Romans. And like a doctor diagnosing the symptoms of an unhealthy body, Paul cites many practices, including the proliferation and normalization of same-sex relationships, to demonstrate that a culture or a society is unhealthy, that the culture is rooted in a lie. What may be made known about God is plain to them. This is all Gentiles, all non-Jews everywhere, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. They exchange the truth or reality about God for a lie You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. For Paul, the idolatry, which manifests in many practices, if you read the whole of Romans 1, including the proliferation uh, proliferation and normalization of same-sex relationships applies in every community east of Eden. All societies have fallen in that they have exchanged the reality of God for a lie. They worship created things, humans and animals, rather than the creator. Whether it is the Canaanite pagan context of the ancient Israelites back in Leviticus, the Greco-Roman context of first century Christians... And therefore we conclude Paul would include the cultural context of the West for 21st century Christians who live in the West today. The idolatry, the fall from worship to idolatry, always manifests in social injustice and sexual immorality. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts this, quoted by John Tyson. The honest interpreter should recognise how general Paul's language is. He doesn't describe homosexual prostitution, men having sex with boys, or reckless orgies. Nor does he bemoan the passive partner in male-male sexual encounters, as many of his Greco-Roman contemporaries did. Paul doesn't draw attention to violating the social pecking order of the Roman class system, as other authors did. And contrary to the opinion of modern scholars, Paul doesn't showcase a low view of women here. Paul uses basic terms and language of mutuality, male and female, natural and unnatural, one another, to describe consensual same-sex acts. His, his next reference to gay sex is in the same chapter we looked at last week to the church in Corinth. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honour God with your body. What is particularly about, complex about Paul's language here is that he makes up a word, along with using another known word, malakoi, which is also translated soft to do with cloth in other times in the New Testament, together translated as men having sex with men. And there's been a great deal of discussion about what this word, arsenikoitoi, means. Again, Kevin de Young argues that there are plenty of Greek words that Paul could have used to prohibit same-sex practice on the grounds that it was coercive, but he chose to form his own word. So in his book, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? There were other Greek words that were widely used by Christians, Jews, pagans, and anyone else who knew Greek to refer to pederasty. For instance, the Greek word paedrastes was widely used to refer to the love of boys, or pidothoros, corrupter of boys, or pidothorio, seducer of boys. Jewish authors especially used the latter two terms to condemn the practice, Another pair of Greek words, Erastes and Aramenos, were often used to describe the older man, Erastes, and his boy lover, Aramentos. Paul uses none of those words. He specifically uses a word which is formed from two words near each other in his Greek translation of Leviticus 20. Which he, Jesus, and every devout follower in first century Judaism would have learned off by heart. In other words, Paul is advocating the prohibition of men having sex with men, not because the encounters were coercive, humiliating, or excessive, but because they violate transcendent design. So at this point, remember we're teaching you how to think, not what to think. I would encourage you to go to the third reference to gay sex in the New Testament. It's in 1 Timothy 1, and ask yourself the question, does Paul's list of behaviours... that are contrary to the good news about Jesus in that chapter include men having sex with men because the sex act is in the context of coercion, humiliation or excess or is it because it violates design or destiny, a sign of Christ's love for the church? As gay academic and queer theorist Louis Crompton astutely articulates and this is where I love academics, he's so sharp Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relation under any circumstances. And this is it. We have Christian gay marriages become saved by mutual consent. That's a a false self-righteousness. It's a false gospel. He absolutely drills on in that idea. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. We are saved or restored by one thing only, and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my interpretation of these texts is that Paul was clearly emphasising that sex between two men or two women is a violation of design and doesn't point to Christ and the church. Destiny. Irrespective of the cultural context for the Sex Act. Sex is a sign of Christ's love for the church. Both Jesus and Paul teach that in creation only a man and a woman can actually become one through having sex. Only they can represent the union of Christ and the church. Same and different. When a man and a man or a woman and a woman have sex, however monogamously, faithfully, mutually their context is they do not become one they remain two distinct units the root word of marriage is union two men and two women remain two distinct units they may be described as married by certain cultures but before God they are not as they remain two distinct units their lack of union means they do not point to Christ and the church Marriage is by the very meaning of its root, union, the two becoming one. And this is only possible between a man and a woman. Chris and I, therefore, would not bless same-sex unions because we do not believe they are a union. The creator was originally split into male and female, and the two became one to procreate. That was our design in Eden. And because the husband and wife now, post-Eden, post-cross and resurrection point to Christ's love and union with the church destiny we believe that marriage is uniquely between a man and a woman however just as consent is not enough for salvation neither is heterosexuality just because the creator's original design was binary it doesn't mean that anyone who is heterosexual is more righteous we are not righteous by anything other than our confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the inhabitation of a new creation where all marriage will end. That's what we're doing now. We're anticipating the ultimate union of Christ and the church. Being heterosexual is not the goal or the means to righteousness. Putting faith in Jesus is. He is our righteousness. Just think for a second about the heterosexual digital porn industry. Thank you, Emma. Highlighting that in an article yesterday in the Saturday Times, it is ubiquitously forming the neural pathways of teenage and young men, so that they are programmed now to assume sex and violence is normal, and yet, sorry, violence in sex, violence against women in sex is normal, and totally shocked if the woman might not be want to be like strangled to blackout. That is normal and at the same time they are physiologically unable to be aroused by a real woman. That is ubiquitous. Every teenage boy you meet, every young man you meet is now being trained in that. We are all broken. We are all in need of complete and a thorough restoration. There is no dividing wall of hostility anymore. There is no us and them There is no included or excluded. We all have broken hearts, broken minds, broken bodies and broken lives. And we are all in dire need of restoration. When Jesus's body was broken on the cross, his death was sufficient to release abundant life to all who want it. So I'm going to end by touching on the stories of two people whose purity and devotion to Jesus have profoundly inspired me. Their journey of surrender was long and deep. The secret thoughts of an unlikely convert, an English professor's journey into Christian faith, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and David Bennett, A War of Loves, the unexpected story of a gay activist who discovers Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield describes Her conversion, she had an academic background, so she's really intelligent and thoughtful to read and really good at calling out some of the, the ways the church needs to change. It's brilliant. But she describes her conversion as a train wreck. She lost her partner, her home, her academic career, her community, everything but the dog. That sounds to me like a global Christian conversion where our brothers and sisters around the world, when they get baptised, they know it's their death sentence. In Iran, in Afghanistan, the fastest growing churches in the world, they know what they're doing. She sounds closer to that than many people I've ever met. David Bennett, the same. I'm going to read, and I can't do him justice, the depth and wrestling of his surrender, but I'm just going to read some bits of it. This is David Bennett. I thought again of Paul's words in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of true and proper worship. I knew beyond doubt that God was asking me to do what I had never thought I could, give him my homosexuality and choose celibacy. It was that simple. It was also that hard. From a sort of loving, desperate surrender, I prayed, Lord, I whispered, you died on the cross for me. You gave me your body. How could I not give you my body in return? How could I hold back my sexuality, let alone my money, my plans, my affection, my whole self? Anything less wouldn't be true worship. This was different from my other times of surrender. God had given me all of himself in his son and spirit and it was time to give him all of myself. My gay identity had to bow to Jesus Christ, and that meant being willing to live without a partner for the remainder of my life. His love called me to relinquish the desires warring against my repentance. I gave them over to him and was swept into his arms. This was the greater romance, the one true love that could fulfill me, far more than sex or any relationship could. The choice to give myself completely to God was not one I made as an indifferent, unfeeling robot. My heart was tender, bleeding, human. And it was the costly sacrifice I was offering him, a sacrifice that cannot be put into words. It is difficult to describe the depths of intimacy I shared with Jesus Christ after that choice. returning to the original question, where does reality lie? We believe it lies with God, and the more Christ-like we become, the more real we become, and we become more Christ-like through surrender and trust. We surrender to God as the reliable source of reality and trust that he really does have our best interests at heart. As a footnote, finally, After 25 years, I surrendered. I have a female body, therefore I am a woman. And then I realized with delight that there is no such thing, even in this temporal age, as an ideal man or an ideal woman. There are billions of versions, because there are billions of us. It turns out God was infinitely more creative than we are, or we thought Him to be. How do we welcome others? Well, firstly, is a church that is called to be family for those on the margins, which includes the LGBTQ plus community, and a church all children love to be part of. We welcome everyone, wherever they're at. We call each one of us into the good works of faith that Christ created in advance for each one of us to do, and we walk together. We build a community of such love, joy, generosity, justice, hope, and peace that all who are thirsty will want to drink yeah. we belong and we take as long as we need to find our place of belonging we believe because over time we do and we become and that is only something that can ever happen between an individual and God Only God can make us more Christ-like. All we can do is cheer each other on in the process. Whoever we are, wherever we are from, however we engage with Christians, as Christians with sex, sexuality and gender, we unite on earth around this one aim, to make Jesus our first love. Inspired by our brothers and sisters who lay down everything to follow Jesus, I think it would be fitting to finish with a fresh prayer of surrender for all of us from St. Ignatius. I'm going to read this prayer. Let's just take a moment. Take, Lord, receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, my whole will, all that I have and all that I possess. You gave it all to me, Lord. I give it all back to you. Do with it as you will, according to your good pleasure. Amen. I'll answer that. I'll answer there's a really good question by Christy LGBTQ. I did have a whole list of definitions, but I didn't have enough time to say them. So I'll give the definition on the Q&A on May the 29th.